All right, good evening, everyone. So as Jack said, we're in 1 Samuel tonight. So if you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24 in your Bibles, please, and just hold your place there for a moment. So we're entertaining some German friends at the minute, and they wanted to try fish and chips. So that was our dinner today, fish and chips. And I can safely say, I can recommend it as possibly the worst meal to have before coming up to preach. <laughs> Sitting so heavy on me. And I'm like, I'm parched. I'm going to like go through that cup in about the first five minutes. But we'll, we'll get through it. I might be sitting down by the end of this. Anyways, like Jack said, what I want to look at today is this idea of reconciliation. Okay? And when I say that, I'm not talking about um, the reconciliation between ourselves and God, as wonderful and sermon-worthy as that is. Uh, what I want to look at today is how we reconcile with one another after one of us has sinned against someone else. And this isn't me trying to really subtly drop the hint to someone to come and say sorry to me for something they've done. Or no, you know, no one has to feel guilty for sinning against me or feel targeted or attacked. Okay, that's not what this is about. The reason I think it's worth us thinking about reconciliation, about how to deal with one another's sin, is because we're all human beings. We're all fallen human beings. And even though we've been saved, we will continue to sin for the rest of our lives until Christ comes back. And that means we will continue to sin against one another until Christ comes back. As the church, though, our calling is not to cut all ties with people who sin against us. Our calling isn't to hold grudges. Our calling isn't to form cliques and tribes within the church. And what is our calling as a body of believers? Well, it's to love one another, to encourage one another, to exhort one another. It's to bear with one another, to forgive one another, to live in harmony with one another. And the list goes on, but you get the idea. The emphasis throughout the New Testament is not, oh, those people are sinners and might hurt you. You best keep clear of them. The emphasis really is, okay, we're all sinners, but how are we going to treat each other? and put up with each other, and further the kingdom of God together, despite that. And when we come into the church, we enter into one body, but we enter it as individuals. We're individuals who each have our own nuances, our own quirks, some more than others, our tendencies to sin in particular ways that maybe other people don't. You know, we each bring to the table a thousand different ways to annoy each other. We each bring the baggage that we carry from our whole life experience up to now. We come from different cultures, whether that's a class thing, working class, middle class, whatever, or our nationalities, or our race. We bring a huge amount of stuff into the church as a result of that. I mean, listen to this. An Englishman, a Nigerian, a South African, a German, a Greek, and an Irishman walk into a church. And that sounds like the start of a poor joke, except it's not a joke. You know, it's, it's reality every Sunday morning here, and it's mad, okay? But that's the reality that we live in. And this, this church, especially recently, has become a, a melting pot of different nationalities and races and cultures and backgrounds, and that is a beautiful thing. You know, it's exactly what Christ wanted the church to look like when he commanded the apostles to reach all nations. However doesn't come without its difficulties. People with different cultural backgrounds, they rub up against each other. 
there's friction. And if you spend enough time together, there'll be sin too. And please let me reiterate, I'm not using this as a platform to accuse anyone of anything. This isn't a thinly veiled guilt trip. My point is simply that because people are people, they will sin against each other. And as Christians, we have to navigate our way through that. So tonight we're going to be looking at an episode from the life of David. And I realize we're jumping into this cold, so let's set the scene a little. Let's get the passage into context. By the time we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 24, Israel are being ruled by their first king, Saul. Previously, they'd just been ruled by God in a theocracy, but the Israelites didn't like that anymore. They saw that other countries around them had kings, so they wanted one too. God says, fine, you can have a king, and Saul becomes the first king of Israel. Now, during the course of Saul's reign, of course, he proves himself to be unworthy of the task of being king. He's disobedient to God. He's impatient with God. He takes matters into his own hands when he's told to wait, and eventually God says, enough. God tells Saul that he will remain king, but his children won't inherit the throne. Saul is going to be the first, the only, and the last of his dynasty. So Jonathan, his son, won't be king. So God anoints a new king, a man called David. And David would be the one to take the throne after Saul, not Jonathan. David goes on to become a member of Saul's household, highly successful general in the army, and eventually becomes more popular amongst the people than Saul. And as David is rising through the ranks, Saul is descending more and more into madness. He tries to kill David several times, and David is finally forced to flee from Saul to save his life. And we're picking up the story at a time when David is on the run. He and a group of fighters loyal to him are hiding in the caves in, caves in the desert. And all the while, Saul and his men are hunting him. The message is going to be in four parts. So we'll look at David's actions from verses 1 to 4, his guilt, verses 5 to 7, David's defense in verses 8 to 15, and then Saul's response in verse 16 to 22. We'll take it a bit at a time. So first, let's look at David's actions in this story then. From verses 1 to 4, 1 Samuel 24, it says this. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. From verse 1 then, Saul's informed of where David is. He's out in the desert, hiding. So Saul gathers together 3,000 of the best fighters available to him, and he sets off to hunt down this one man, David. He heads into the wilderness. He comes to a place called En Gedi, intent on finding David and killing him. And when he gets there, it's been a long journey, and Saul needs to relieve himself. He finds a spot away from everyone in a cave in the cliffside. And what he had no idea about, however, is that he happened to pick the exact same cave in which David and some of his men were hiding. Now, imagine you're David in this situation. What must be going through your mind at this point? 
the very person that you're hiding from, the one who's trying to kill you, the one who's already tried to kill you, comes along unguarded into your cave, completely at your mercy. Now, what should David do? He only has a minute or so to decide before Saul is gone. He's under pressure, has to make a decision. Does he kill Saul? Does he let Saul go? Does he try something else? Well, David's friends, they think they know the answer. This is the day we've all been waiting for. God has set this up for you to kill Saul. Everything has fallen into place so perfectly. This must be from God. Do it, David. Do it. But is that what God wanted in this situation? Well, no, it wasn't. That wasn't what God wanted in that situation. Earlier in the Old Testament, God had made it clear in the law that murder was sin. And this would still definitely be murder. God's word tells us what's right or wrong. Not the circumstances. However nicely things may seem to be falling into place. David would be sinning here if he killed Saul. That's never what God wants from us. However well the situation may be set up otherwise. So here's the first challenge for us. How do we make decisions in our lives as men and women of God? Are we going to be just like David's friends and see what way the wind seems to be blowing and say, oh, well, that's obviously where God wants me to be? Or will we let God's word show us what the right way to go is? David knew it would be murder for him to kill Saul, so he refuses to do it. Instead, he sneaks up to Saul and cuts a small bit of fabric from his coat. Now, at this point in the story, we're pretty impressed with David, right? The guy who wanted to kill him was right there, helpless and all alone, and David restrained himself from killing him. Just messed his clothes up a little bit. And that must have taken huge amounts of self-control and humility to do that. And we're thinking, well done, David. That's, you know, that's probably not how most people would have acted in that situation. But let's now look at David's guilt. What did David think about what he'd done? Verse 5 says this, Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men, did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. So immediately after cutting the robe, David feels guilty for what he did. That's what it means by David was conscience-stricken. He felt guilty for cutting off Saul's robe. And as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, David, like, what are you on about? You know, you could have killed this guy, but all you did was cut off the fabric from his clothes a bit. And what's the problem? How could David be the guilty party in all of this? And maybe David's men were wondering what was going on too, because David goes on to explain to them why he feels guilty. He explains that because Saul is the king, Saul was put in that position by God. So David shouldn't have touched him. And it's as simple as that. It was sin for David to challenge the God-given authority of the king of Israel. That's what David had done. You see, David had mocked Saul by his actions, and that was wrong. If we're honest, though, A part of us is still thinking, yeah, okay, David, I see where you're coming from. Maybe it was wrong, but still, it's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, let's be honest, it was kind of funny. Saul probably deserved it. I mean, in fact, he deserved much more than what he got there. We know if that is what we're thinking, I bet we all think that a little bit. And we can learn a lot from David's example here. 
David knew that little sins are still sins. Yes, cutting Saul's robe definitely wasn't as bad as killing the guy, but it was still wrong. And we might be a bit confused by David's conscience, but what we see is that he had a heart that struck him even for the littlest things. And that's definitely a good condition to be in. Small sins eventually lead to big sins. So recognizing a little sin, as soon as it rears its head, allows it to be nipped in the bud straight away without letting it go any further. And you'll see later in David's life the consequences of letting sin spiral out of control. Also, David loved God, so he wanted to obey him fully. And if we're Christians, then we love God too, and so we should want to follow him and obey him in every detail. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Not just the important commandments, or the commandments you think matter the most, or the commandments that are easy to obey. No, just you'll keep my commandments. And if we're really Christians, then we should be striving to obey God in every detail. We want to really walk the walk. You know, not just show up to church on a Sunday and leave our Christianity here. How we act through the week, at work, or with neighbors, or within our family, that's where we need to be aware of the little details of obeying God. You see, even this little mockery from David was in the flesh. It was David's pride trying to do its own thing. Really, we should be doing things God's way. David cut the robe. I mean, the reason he did it was that he could prove to Saul that he wasn't really out to kill him. He wanted to show that he had the chance to kill him, but he didn't take it. But David was wrong to do this in the way that he did. David didn't have to sin. You know, God is more than able to find a way to prove David's innocence without requiring David to sin to do it. So David was right to feel the way he did. And he repented of his sin. Now let's see what happened with David's friends. Verse 7 tells us that David's words here steered his friends. He wouldn't let them attack Saul. And you can imagine how David's friends must have felt when they realized he hadn't killed Saul. And now imagine you're one of David's best friends. You're constantly on the run together. You know, from a killer who's trying to get you. You want to protect your friend. You want to defend him. You're hiding in a cave in the desert. And when your friend finally gets the chance to end all the chasing, all of the fearing for your life, for good, he doesn't take it. I mean, you'd go mad. You know, maybe you try and do it ourselves. Maybe when David told them what he'd done, maybe it turned into a heated argument. But David stood firm for doing the right thing. He wouldn't give in to sin anymore, and he wouldn't let his friends either. I mean, what an example, right? David, he stood for righteousness in a group of people that seemed desperate to kill Saul there and then. He leads all of his friends down that righteous path with him. Lots of people wanted to do the wrong thing, but that didn't mean David would go along with it. Instead, he led them down the right path. And don't be swept away by what other people are doing. Be the example of how to really live for God. Be the example of what it means to follow Christ. Be the example of what it means to really love Christ by obeying his commandments. And then, hopefully, people will follow you down that path rather than you stooping to what other people are doing. And this reminds me of when I first got saved, there was a guy who gave me this example. And he said that Christians should not be like a thermometer. Okay, 
A thermometer, whatever room you put a thermometer in, a thermometer moves to match the temperature of the room. He said Christians should be like a thermostat where you change the temperature of the room. You don't adapt to the surroundings, don't adapt to what's going on around you. You bring the surroundings up with you. Now we're going to move on to look at David's defense. And this is where we really get into that idea of reconciliation. Before we do that, I want to quote to you Proverbs 16, verse 7. Don't need to worry about turning there. It says this. It says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. And keep that in mind as we read the rest of the passage. What we're going to see is a really practical way in in which this proverb was played out in real life. David is a man who pleased the Lord. And we're going to see how because of that, even his enemy Saul will be at peace with him, at least for a short time. So back to 1 Samuel. Let's read verses 8 to 15. It says this. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord the king, When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog or a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. So David comes out to meet Saul, to talk with him and to present his case. And let's look at four interesting things about the speech David gives Saul here. First things first. It's David that comes to Saul looking to make peace, not the other way around. And if you think in the grand scheme of things here, Saul was the one who had really done wrong to David by hunting him down to kill him, right? So naturally, we'd think that David should be waiting for Saul to come and make up with him. And he'd be like, well, I'm not going to meet him. If he finally wants to say sorry, he can come and talk to me. But David goes out to him. And let's not forget, David has about 600 men with him at this point, while Saul has 3,000. David is outnumbered five to one here. It's a massive risk for David to do this. Even though he's the innocent person in the conflict at large, he takes the risk to seek peace with Saul. If we've been wronged by anyone in our lives, let's not be the kind of people who wait around for the other one to come crawling back to say sorry. Let's seek that person out ourselves. Be actively gracious to them. You know, we have a much higher chance of making peace by reaching out to the person rather than if we just let the issue stew. Now, secondly, notice how respectful and gracious David is when he approaches Saul. He calls him, my Lord, the king. He stoops to the ground as he talks to him. Later, he calls him father. 
David isn't just being self-righteous in front of Saul. And whatever David may have thought of Saul, like we said earlier, he's still the king, put there by God, and that demanded respect. And what character David showed to be able to look past everything Saul had done to him and still respect him as the king. He respects him because of his title, even though the man himself isn't very respectable. David approaches Saul so genuinely because he's actually trying to make peace with him, not just rub his sin in his face, not flaunt how good David is, but to actually make peace with him. And if we have to make peace with someone in our lives, then this is the attitude we need to have. Our attitude shouldn't be, look what you did to me. Look how perfect I am, and yet you still did this to me. You know, it should be an attitude of humility, of genuinely trying to make peace between the two of us. And thirdly, David gives Saul the facts. So we've established that if we've been wronged, we should seek that person out to make peace. And as we do that, we should be gracious and we should be respectful. And now that we've got that attitude right, we're ready to actually share the truth of the situation with that person. You know, if we've been wronged or if someone believes something about us that's false, then it's good to correct that information in our defense. You know, part of reconciliation is about revealing the truth. But it has to be done in the right way. David asks Saul, why do you believe the things that people say about me? And notice how he's still giving Saul the benefit of the doubt here. And then he shows Saul the evidence of his innocence by presenting the bit of the robe that he cut off. And he's saying, if I really wanted to kill you, I could have done it a few minutes ago, but I didn't. Instead, I took a bit of your cloak. And he also says, look, you're trying to kill me, a nobody, a flea. You're hunting me down, but I haven't sinned against you. My friends, they said I should kill you, but I didn't. So let's seek peace. Let's put a stop to all of the chasing. And finally, David presents Saul with God's truth. He gives the real reason that he didn't kill Saul. My friends told me to kill you in the cave, but I didn't. Why? Because I'm not going to raise a finger against God's anointed, the one who God appointed to be king. That's in verse 10. Then a couple of verses later in verse 12, David presents an amazing truth. And it's a truth that we can all find comfort in when we're in situations when someone has sinned against us. This verse is like a summary of the whole chapter. It's the real take-home message of this portion of the Bible. 1 Samuel 24, verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And David says something very similar in verse 15 too. David is saying, all of this, it's in God's hands. Any wrong you've done against me, any wrong I've done against you, God will deal with it. God is a fair, impartial, and righteous judge, and he'll judge between you and me. He'll dish out any vengeance which is necessary. But me though, I'm going to leave it in his hands. I'm not going to raise a finger against you, Saul, because that isn't my job. It's God's job and his alone. If we follow David's example in this, when someone has wronged us, then this will be such a freeing experience. You know, if we can be like David here, then we can be free from all the bitterness, all the anger, 
all the vengefulness we feel when we're sinned against. I mean, cast the whole situation before God and rest in the fact that it's his job to deal with the situation, not ours. And he will deal with the situation. You see, if we've been sinned against, then that sin from that person will be dealt with. We can have absolute surety of that. You know, God is far too holy, far too just for sin to go unpunished. He doesn't use us to do the punishing. If the person who sinned against you is a Christian, then that sin that they committed has already been punished. Christ took the punishment for it on the cross. So when that person sins against you, that's a sin that Christ has taken the punishment for. That's a sin that's already been dealt with forever. On the other hand, if the person isn't a Christian, then sadly they will be punished for their own sin after they die. Either way, it's going to be God that does the punishing, not us. And you know, that, that shouldn't upset us. You know, we shouldn't be thinking, ah, oh, but I really wanted to have the chance myself to give it to them. You know, it should make us be joyful that we can give all of our bitterness, all of our anger over to God and just relax, you know, knowing that it's dealt with already. You know, you know how it feels when someone sins against you. You know the, the self-righteousness and the pride that bubbles up within you. Maybe it's just me. I don't know. I understand how that feels, right? When someone's done something wrong against you and everything that's coming out of you is just anger and bitterness and awful, right? It's not fun for you to feel like that. It's not a state that we want to be in, okay? But we can cast that all to God and have absolute confidence that God is fully in control of that situation, that God will deal with all of it. It's not our responsibility. And we can be free from all of those emotions and all of those sins, really, that come up when we've been sinned against. So we've seen what David had to say for himself. David was the one seeking out peace. He was very respectful and gracious to Saul. And he shared both the truth of the situation with Saul but also the truth of God's word with him. So how will Saul respond? Well, let's read on. Verse 16. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You've just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul heard everything that David had to say and it genuinely moved him to tears. He wept at what he heard. And he starts to talk to David very personally, calling him son again. And Saul really was moved by all of this. You know, we can give him that. He's not going to break down crying in front of 3,000 of his own soldiers and 600 enemy soldiers just for the sake of it. You know, Saul had seen his sin here and he really was broken by it. You can see that David is righteous in this situation and that he, Saul, has done evil against David. 
So it seems that immediately after David has presented his case, it's made his enemy, Saul, be at peace with him. Now, we remember our proverb from earlier, saying, if I walk with God, even my enemies will be at peace with me. And we see this example with David and Saul seem to work instantly. It's worth remembering that things like this may go on for a while. The other person may never make peace with you. And whilst that is heartbreaking, what's important for you is that you sought peace with them. You went to them graciously, and you tried to deal with that problem. And by doing that, your conscience at least will be clear. I mean, even in this case with David and Saul, it looks like peace has been made. But as we know, that won't last. Saul goes back to hating David and wanting to kill him very shortly afterwards. See, despite Saul's tears and his heartbreak over his sin, he goes right back to the same sins not too long after. As we read this story, and as we look at other events in David's life, what I've realized, especially for myself, is it's very easy for us to identify with David in each, in each story, to think we're the David in each story. You know, it's easy to think of ourselves as the innocent party who's been wronged and who has to try and deal with that in a godly way. But let's be honest, just as often, if not more, we're really the soul in the story. I think that's definitely true of myself. We are the person who sinned against our friend. Quite often, even though we don't want to admit it, we are the ones in the wrong. So how do we deal with that then? Well, not the way Saul dealt with it. Yes, I mean, we definitely want to follow Saul in how broken he is over his sin, but we need to go further than that. Okay, we need to run to Christ for the forgiveness and for the transformation that he offers from sin. You know, Saul is clearly broken by his sin. We can give him that. But it's not enough just to weep over sin. We need to repent of it. Saul saw that he'd sinned. We never really saw how unrighteous he was. I mean, look at verse 17. Saul just says that David is more righteous than he is. Not that Saul's actually unrighteous, but just that David is more righteous than him. And Saul fell back into the same sins straight after this encounter because he only wept. He never repented. If we've, been, if we've sinned against someone, then we need to accept that that was sin. Okay, it wasn't just a mistake or some misunderstanding or someone getting a bit offended about something. It was sin. And the reason I say that is because if we can see our own sin, if we can recognize it for what it is, then rather than brushing it under the carpet, we can run to Christ with it, saying, Christ, I've failed, I've sinned, and this is how I've sinned. But I know you died for this sin too. And I can be forgiven and go on to make peace with my friend. We see in verses 18 to 19 how amazed Saul is by David's actions. David's integrity, his unwillingness to give in to sin, and his righteous stance have made Saul realize that David isn't really out to kill him. And that David will end up being king. And this is the power of living for God in every detail, like David did. It shows the world the kind of God we serve. It shows them that we believe God is worth serving in everything. It shows people Christ living in us. In verse 13, a slightly different translation, David says this, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But we should just as easily be able to say that out of the Christian 
comes Christ-likeness. Everything that Saul says in these verses, his whole attitude here, it stems from his sheer amazement at David's actions. So how can we be like David was here? How was David able to act the way that he did? Well, David wasn't just following a set of rules. He was in a real, personal, and close relationship with God. He loved God and he wanted to please him, which then involved obeying his rules. If we want to be like David, then we simply have to get closer and closer to Christ. And then we'll start to think and act more and more like Christ would. I have three final points to sum up everything we've talked about. So if you forget everything else from today, and take away these three things. Number one, know that people will sin against you, and you will sin against other people. You live in a world where everyone is sinful, where everyone is selfish, where everyone is prideful. The Christians in your life struggle with this, and you struggle with it too, and I struggle with it. We all want our own way. I want to get what I want, you want to get what you want, and people will be mistreated in the process. And this sounds obvious seeing it now, but we all know that when it happens, we're so surprised that someone would do this to us. Which brings us to the second point. Understand your flesh. What do I mean by that? Well, the flesh is the part of you that still loves sin. So I mean that naturally, you will want to retaliate when someone has wronged you. Or if you've wronged somebody, you'll just want to brush it under the carpet and make excuses for what you've done. It wasn't really a big deal. I didn't mean anything by it. Just get over it. And that's our natural reaction. Okay? And it has to be expected. As sinful humans ourselves, by default, we do not take it well when we're sinned against. So, I've told you people are going to sin against you, and you're going to want to kick off about it. Great. What should we be doing instead? Well, that's point number three. We run to Christ. Whether, you're, whether you've sinned against someone or you've been sinned against, it's the same solution. You run to Christ with it. If we've been wronged, then we need the power to forgive that person the way Jesus does. And that power isn't going to come from us. You know, the only thing coming from us in that moment is anger and pride. So ask Christ to help you forgive that person. If you have wronged someone, if I have wronged someone, then accept that fact. Recognize that what we did was a sin and be broken over that sin, but then run to Christ. Run to Jesus for the forgiveness of that sin. You know, Christ died for that sin too and ask for the humility to go to the other person and repair the situation. David saw his sin for what it was. It was sin. And if we can do the same, then we're already a long way down the road to being able to make up with the people that we have sinned against. And I hope that what I've said today helps us to live better together as a church. You know, church means community, and community means people, and unfortunately, people mean sin. But Jesus forgives sin, and Jesus empowers us to forgive the sin of others and to confess our own sin. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father God, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture that we can see um, 
David's actions towards Saul here. That even though David has been hunted down and Saul's trying to kill him, that he takes the risk to come out and seek Saul and seek to make peace with him. I pray that you help us to follow in David's example of humility and of graciousness when we come to seek out other people. I pray, the Lord, that you genuinely help us to be the peacemakers in situations. And dear Father God, I pray that you help us learn from the example of Saul here. They help us not just to weep over our sin, but to truly repent of it, to run to you, Lord. And thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that you've died for our sin, that you've died for every sin that any of us have committed, that any of us will commit, that all of our sins against each other have already been nailed to the cross with you and dealt with. You enacted the greatest act of forgiveness that the world's ever seen, Lord, and I pray that you help us through your power to do that to each other when we come into conflict with one another, Lord. Help us to love one another well. Help us to work together as a community of believers. Help us to reach this area together for your kingdom, Lord. Amen.